with bulging pockets. Every time I put that thing in my pocket, it's awesome. The bulges. Hope I got the right switch on. Father in heaven, we ask you please to grant us now hearts that are diligent and disciplined and delighting in your word. And to that end, we pray you will then use it effectually, not just for us here, but for the church visible and to honor you. We plead again for that privilege, that joy. And so, Father, ask then in that effectual name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, two or three housekeeping details. Uh, the first being that uh, I think uh, it's very interesting how God providentially works in the tiniest details of our life. Yesterday I mentioned Farmer Brown and the animals. I was incorrect. I was not precise. And we need to be accurate as Christians, not careless. So I told Raleigh, who of course was the one who came up and, uh, and told me that he would get honorable mention today, even though he is helping with one of the younger people's classes, because it just so happens in the providence of God that his children, or at least one of them, I believe, uh, thoroughly enjoyed the animals of Farmer Jones. You got that? The animals of Farmer Jones. But it's interesting how one thing triggers another, and nothing is ever isolated. And after Raleigh and I got reminiscing about the animals of Farmer Jones, of course, you know, this happens when old fuds get together. They tell sea stories. And I suppose both Raleigh and I qualify as old fuds, uh, starting visually with the quivering wattles of reserve energy that we carry with us, and then other clues as well. But uh, we went through the animal sound uh, 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 you know, recollections there from the animals of Farmer Jones. And we were talking about uh, the cow, you know, moo, moo, and, and the chicken. And then uh, that, that brought a lot of memories back, see. So this morning when I was jogging, I went up the, I go up the hill, I found this nice jogging trail, it was a couple miles back up there. And I passed the corral with these two big draft horses, and I thought, you know, I haven't done the Farmer Jones routine for a long time. So I went up to the corral, and this old draft horse is standing there. You know, horses are basically kind of stupid and uh, pleasant generally, but stupid. And so I thought, well, I will try the Farmer Jones animal talk appropriately. So I went up to the corral, and I went, nay! Nay, and that horse lifts up his head and it just came right over to the fence. Put its head over the fence. <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, that could, uh, if you understand the scientific method, be, uh, be a somewhat tenuous uh, thing to report dutifully. So on the way back, I again had to pass the corral. And when I tried the what I thought was the more sophisticated form of... <laughs> He just looked at me like, who's that stupid jerk? That's the kind of look I got. So then I thought, well, I'll go back to square one 
and try the Farmer Jones one that I remember. So I went, nay! <laughs> Came right over. <laughs> so you see, uh, we need to be accurate in even the little things of life. And I have now uh, purged my soul of any uh, inaccuracy or scholastic inaccuracy here uh, by confessing that Raleigh indeed brought me front and center, tracking back on course with Farmer Jones. Now, I think it should be obvious that uh, it is impossible uh, in a, such a really short time as ours to deal with all kinds of details of this, what was really a vast subject area, and maybe that's a kind of a clue to my own uh, STD uh, problems, that I actually kid myself that I can cover all the things I would like to in eight sessions, but I'm hoping that uh, this time together will have stimulated you to begin thinking about uh, these issues of our Christian walk and the theology that must undergird every single aspect of it and the fact that we really have a marvelous heritage from the Reformation and not because we're better, I repeat, not because we're any better at all, but because of God's wonderful grace, we're one of the few places left that even are aware that there is a heritage of the sort we've been talking about, not to mention its actual content. And I propose to you then that if you choose to exercise some of these principles and begin thinking about them, uh, it's going to have an effect. God's truth really does transform us. And I'd like to uh, read for you just a couple of verses in that respect. Uh, again, in the hope of uh, really an encouragement to you uh, to take this, this rather serious and yet wonderful responsibility to heart, the business of being communicators and understanders of truth. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And how interesting that the Holy Spirit would lead Paul to say that after that magnificent overview of theocentric thinking that the book of Romans presents to us in those earlier chapters. And then I want to propose to you that so important is this that God even talks uh, about the issue of our love of the truth and its significance. And this is a text I think it's well for us to go back to. And also, by the way, if you have covenant children that are uh, uh, fiddling around with unbelief or carelessness uh, with what they've been given, this is a good text once in a while to, to read uh, in the family devotions. Uh, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'm picking up the account here in verse 7 and reading down to verse 12. 
For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and I don't think any of us need convincing of that. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bringing to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish. Now, I don't want to get into an eschatological issue, but I would like you to notice that as Paul is dealing with the issue of what I'm now going to call, in a sense, the final spasm of evil uh, before the end uh, and the judgment there, that those who are perishing are going to be deceived. And look at the middle of verse 10. There's that word, because. Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. The love of the truth. And I'm willing to, to say that I personally do not believe it's an illegitimate connection. If we really believe that Jesus is the truth, he said, I am the truth or the truth, that if I don't love the word, whatever words I say, to the contrary, I really don't love Jesus. If I don't love the word, the only person I'm kidding is the guy I meet in the morning when I look in the mirror to wash my face. If I think I love Jesus but don't love the word. And then uh, Paul goes on, verse 11, For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And in verse 11, Paul is saying that there is a judgment that comes on those who do not love the truth. In other words, not loving the truth is not merely some kind of neutral ho-hum thing. That if a person elects to not love the truth, in God's time there can, and if it persists without repentance, eventually will be, a God-sent delusion. So they will prefer to believe a lie rather than the truth in order that they may be judged perfectly. And so I think if you take this text seriously, if you and I care about what's said here, that a conscious prayer to love the truth, to, de to develop, uh, if you will, an increasing delight in the truth is an extremely appropriate prayer. That's something I believe all of us can pray, should pray from time to time, and I don't believe any of us are ever at a place in this life where we don't need to pray that. And then, pushing it just a bit further, I'd ask you to turn with me over to 2 Corinthians 10. As another clue of just how important this business we've been thinking about this morning is, and Alan, I, I kind of uh, took just a little bit of a real delight in your comment when we sang, Jesus loved me, and you said that was epistemologically significant or words to that effect. Do you realize just how epistemologically significant Jesus loves me is? Jesus loves me. This I know. This I know. Because I've had an experience. That's not what the hymn said. 
Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I remember years ago, I was dealing with a woman at the Lemoore Naval Air Station who just could not somehow see any real basis for conviction or confidence that she was the evident object of God's evident love. And I had gone through all sorts of texts with her. And I could see that she could somehow, you know, in her mind, she could give a kind of a lip service, but it wasn't being integrated into the woof and warp of her soul. It wasn't being written, if you will, in the tablets of her heart. And finally, I decided to do something that may seem awfully simple. I said, look, I want you to go home, and I want you to take that old hymn, Jesus Loves Me, and I want you to write it out without the music, and then I want you to say it, because if you sing it, it's easy to slip over what it's saying. And I want you to go through that ten times a day. You remember that business? What we say influences what we think as much as what we think influences what we say. She came back to me a week later, and her face was radiant. That's what did it. She said it enough that something clicked finally. And the Holy Spirit blessed, and, and you know her confidence kicked into gear there. And she finally got through that, that over that threshold. But all of the explanations hadn't worked. But somewhere she just, uh, I guess, had to get, uh, if you will, the intellect along with the intuitive part of her thinking uh, married in a responsible and objective way. But it was that simple hymn, Jesus Loved Me, that helped her over that threshold, which, of course, was emotional and a lot of other things as well. Well, in 2 Corinthians 10, uh, Verses, beginning with verse 3, uh, Paul addresses here something that, though we've not discussed it, certainly ought to be intuitively obvious. We're in a warfare, and we're in a very severe warfare. And he says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of forces, fortresses. We are destroying speculations, isn't that interesting, speculations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And that would certainly apply to every single manufactured system of belief that men offer in the place of truth. And then what he says, at the end of verse 5, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Remarkable statement. Every thought captive to the obedience of of Jesus Christ. And you may have guessed yesterday that there were a lot of parts about the issue of salvation that I would have uh, liked to have touched on and simply uh, couldn't, but uh, I want to address uh, again and trying to make over this week a kind of a mosaic, and I hope the pieces of the tiles beginning to fit in place, you're beginning to see that marvelous consistent picture emerging where every truth is related to every other truth in Scripture. The fact that if indeed I understand this business of the preeminence of God in salvation, that he's the initiator, if I understand it's his truth and not our speculative thought that's the basis of our hope and that conveys the truths of salvation, that it's the truth that makes us free, that it's in Jesus Christ we're redeemed and uh, not uh, we ourselves, that's a call, that's a tremendous call, inferentially, to be thankful. And I want to go back for just a minute to Romans chapter 1. 
uh, as a reminder, as we've occasionally gone back for a minute and looked at the uh, world and we see its perversions, uh, to remind you that I think the Puritans had a much better grasp of thanksgiving than the Reformers did than you and I do. Because when you read some of those hymns, the words of those hymns we've been singing, it's just been marvelous to sing some of those hymns. I don't know if you've noticed, but the dates on a lot of them go back to 1500s and 1600s. Some of them from Holland, some of them from England, where there's terrible persecution. And that spirit of rejoicing and thanksgiving is just overwhelming. And, and you realize the context. It wasn't in an ideal situation. It was in the midst of persecution. And yet they focused on uh, praising God and thanking him. Well, in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, we have a remarkably condensed overview of the basis for God's judgment on mankind. And particularly, I think we can argue uh, this is a uh, correct assessment of his indictment of man at the time of the flood, but dealing with the unbelief of man generally from the beginning of creation. He says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. See, their theology was bad. And then notice the second one. Or give thanks. They didn't give thanks. And so the application of their theology was deficient. And when they didn't have sound theology that wasn't expressed tangibly in especially a humility and a gratitude toward God, then there was, because we live in a cause and effect world, we do nothing that's neutral, they became speculative and their hearts were darkened. And then uh, over uh, very quickly uh, to um, Colossians for a moment. Colossians chapter 2. Verses 6 and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him. And you see, isn't that interesting? Rooted, there's your foundation. You see the truth. Built up, there's that sanctification. And established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and then look at the end, overflowing with gratitude. Overflowing with gratitude. Isn't that powerful? And of all people on the face of the earth, who ought to be the most grateful? Who ought to be the most overflowing with thanksgiving? But those of us who are the inheritors of the truths and the history of the Reformation. And then over in chapter 3 of Colossians, look at what Paul says here in this uh, chapter on uh, godly living. Verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed called in one body, and... Be thankful. Verse 16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. 
with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Philippians 4, which I hope is a familiar passage. I trust it is. Verse 6, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Remember we were exhorted, I think quite properly, to prayer the other evening. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Guarding our minds. Guarding our will. There's a dynamic there as we respond to God. In the light of his word, God brings that full, that in a sense that loop full around where he strengthens and builds us up in the very faith that we're exercising in order to honor him. Now, this morning I want to press a little bit because I've already hinted here in a couple of these texts that uh, as we're trying to weave this mosaic together, sanctification is a critical part of the picture. And by way of introduction, I want to first of all just point out that sanctification is ignored by most people, neglected by many, well understood by few, and eagerly sought by a remnant. Yet God does call us to be sanctified as surely as he calls us to repent and believe. Sanctification is the God-ordained process of becoming more holy. It is the God-ordained dynamic business of putting off sin and of putting on righteousness. It is the glorious business of dying unto self and living to Christ. Now, I don't know if any of you here had the privilege of, if you that went to Westminster, of taking John Murray's classes on sanctification, but that was one of the great mind bogglers of all time to see what John Murray did with the subject of sanctification. And uh, one of these days, as my life seems to be slightly more orderly than it used to be, I want to sit down and go over those notes again. And one of the things he pointed out is that we have, of course, a positional sanctification by virtue of the finished work of Christ and the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to us sovereignly and supernaturally by God at the time then of our conversion, justification, and adoption. But the fact is that today, in the bit of time we have together, I want to address what is the much more immediate concern uh, in the issue of sanctification, and that is the business of growing in the grace of God once we have indeed been redeemed. Now, after the Reformation, uh, for a couple of hundred years, there was a great deal of concern about how we lived. And uh, when you realize what we tolerate today without even a blush, 
uh, I think it will help you appreciate just how far we've come when, for instance, uh, crass speaking was unheard of amongst Christians and uh, uh, the idea that uh, families wouldn't know their catechism and so on uh, would have been considered scandalous. And yet, uh, I was indebted to Eileen uh, mentioning the other day that, uh, I think it was Bob DeMoss, you said, Eileen, uh, dealing with some ministers, I'm not sure the context, but it doesn't matter, uh, to try to illustrate that incremental erosion of godliness and of discernment and of standards and so on, uh, told this group of ministers that uh, he was going to show them a, a picture, a centerfold from Playboy. And Eileen, you correct me if I've got this wrong, uh, but uh, as I understood it from what Eileen said, he then proceeded to open up a centerfold from, I think the year you said was 1954, and by today's standards, she was quite modestly clad. By today's standards, the centerfold, I guess Playboy Bunny, is that what it was? Bunny. Uh, was, was sufficiently covered that none of the ministers were shocked. So I think we need a recovery of appreciation for the business of holiness that God really does call us to be a holy people. And let's turn over to Hebrews 10 for a minute. Hebrews chapter 10, first of all. And let's see if we can see an evidence here in Scripture of the connection with the finished work of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ, the messianic work of Christ, with our sanctification. Uh, I'm going to start with verse 26 to give us a little bit of context. I think we need to appreciate the force of this. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sin, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now that was pretty strict, wasn't it? You know, if there were two or three witnesses that had a consistent testimony against you for a capital crime, you got stoned. And then he says, verse 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has done any one of these three things? One, trampled underfoot the Son of God. Two, regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And three, has insulted the Spirit of grace. And I think we have, as ministers, uh, certainly have room to improve in terms of just the language and the description we use and, and making an effort not to just get stuck in uh, uh, linguistic ruts, but occasionally need to refer to sanctification as part of what was earned on the cross, that the blood of Christ is effectual for sanctification as well as salvation, and then pushing that a little bit further, I want to propose to you then that really, if we get careful with Scripture, you cannot separate 
sanctification, from salvation, any more than you can say that a child who is born and doesn't grow, just never grows, is alive. I mean, if a child is born and then nothing grows, eventually we figure out the child has died or will die. And so I believe then that we are called in a very substantive way to be as jealous for these truths uh, as uh, in sanctification as we are about salvation and the sovereignty of God. And uh, I would like to uh, take you to uh, one other text here uh, on this issue of sanctification and tying it together with salvation. And that is over in John 15. John chapter 15. Now, this is a great, great text, I believe, of encouragement. You know, it always bothers me that when I'm doing one of these things and I blow my nose that that's recorded for posterity. (laughs) That's not very nice. (laughs) But then, since we're not... We're not in bondage to niceness. We can handle that, you see. All right. Uh, uh, John 15. Uh, I guess we can say goodness knows such things shouldn't bother us. Um, I heard a hiss from the peanut gallery. That is noted for the tape. (laughs) Verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away or... If you have uh, King James, I believe it says cuts off. And every branch that bears fruit, he blanks it that it may bear more fruit. Now, if you have a New American Standard or some other Bible that has marginal references, you may see in the margin the word cleanse or purge. But if you have an NIV or NAS or some of the other modern translations, it will say something like prunes or cuts off that it may bear more fruit. And I've heard some very elaborate explanations about trimming fruitful branches that, well, I realize represent an earnest effort to get out of a difficulty, beg the question. The fact is that in the Greek... The word means to cleanse with a weak, soapy solution. That's what the word means. And you may say to me, what difference does that make? Well, look carefully at the text. First of all, what does he do with the unfruitful branches? He prunes them, doesn't he? What does the word prune mean? means to cut off, doesn't it? And so the fact is that if translators, probably most of them city boys, and most of them not historians of agricultural practices 2,000 years ago, I don't know too many people that study ancient agronomy, either as a hobby or as a calling. 
can say this doesn't make any sense. How can you purge a grapevine? Well, it's one of those little gems you discover. You know, you go back to Greek and then you struggle around, you flail around, you look at commentaries. And I remember back in Baltimore years ago, I found the clue. Ancient vine dressers would do something that I believe verges on the inconceivable for us Americans. That as the vines begin to grow in the growing season, they would take a bucket of soapy water and they would go out and they would begin to wash the grapevines. They'd cut off the unfruitful branches or the dead branches or the dying branches. But they would wash, get this, get this, to us relatively lazy Americans. They would wash every leaf, every tendril, gently and carefully to get the aphids and the fungi and the bug eggs and all that stuff off the leaves and the fruit. Now I think you don't have to have a very vivid imagination to realize it takes weeks to go through a vineyard. And that was labor intensive. And you may not know it, but right in your midst, cleverly disguised as an ordinary church member, you have a spray person who for years has said to his workers, as a Christian agricultural spray applicator, gentlemen, let us go out, let us spray. And if you wish to ask John Price about spraying, he can tell you that when you spray uh, hundreds and hundreds of acres, you got to have a lot of equipment. And I encourage you to ask him about it if you're interested. He's done that for his living for a number of years. But the fact is they didn't have any of that nice stuff back when Christ was speaking. They didn't have, they didn't have flip guns and that sort of stuff. Nobody figured out atomization of liquids. And so you have a picture here of the incredible, tender, intense concentration of God the Father on every single branch. What a picture of the God-originated commitment of God himself to be involved in the cleansing of his redeemed people. And then you see suddenly all sorts of things, if you understand that, ought to come together when he says in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken in you. And you see how he links those things together. That's powerful. The ingrafting is salvation. The washing and purging is sanctification in that metaphor of the grapevine. And he says then, verse 4, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Sovereignty, 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 you see, in sanctification. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. That word dwell or abide is beautiful, isn't it? We've got to be in Jesus Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. You cannot not bear fruit if you're abiding in Jesus Christ. You're going to bear fruit in spite of yourself. If you're abiding in the vine, 
And you abide in the vine by abiding in his word. John 8, you are my disciples in truth, he said, if you abide in my word. Now, I would hope all sorts of things are beginning to coalesce here. You see, you can't have just a part of the diamond. You've got to take the whole diamond or you throw it away. It's one of the facets that that sanctifying work of the word and the spirit is an inevitable consequence of ingrafting, which is the metaphor of salvation. And so it is inconceivable that Christians go years and years without bearing fruit. And rightly, they ought to examine themselves. I'm going to pick up on Tony's theme again. Examine themselves if they cannot see fruit of the Spirit. Now let me push the envelope again. You know what the word stasis means? What does the word stasis mean? you got to know the basis of stasis. Joke in a poem. What's stasis? Standing in what way? I think you said standing, didn't you? Yeah. Standing still. The word stasis means the cessation of all activity. Now you have another cleverly disguised me, subject matter expert. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> Uh, my apologies, brother, if that's offensive. Uh, Larry McHard here is a biologist. Is it true that in the biological world there's no such thing as absolutely static behavior, no be- in other words, no actual behavior in the biological world? What's that? There's no, that there, if there's stasis, there's no life, is there? No. Now, let's push it a little further. How about, you know, we're here in this beautiful serenity, and if I go up in the hill there, and I can find a piece of granite, and you could say, that's the paradigm of stasis, or static uh, condition. But is that really true? No. If you've, done, if you've been uh, trained at all in the basics of, of uh, science, you know that the molecules. The molecules are like a thousand hippies in a drug scene. In a sense. All milling around, except that that's, the analogy is bad because the hippies do it, you know, flaky, and the molecules are all doing it perfectly in accord with the laws of God. So they're actually better than hippies. You know, that's kind of humbling, isn't it? When you think of molecules are more obedient than people. But that's another subject. So the fact is, that if there isn't growth, there is decay. You can never find something that's just perfectly static. And now I want to really say the hard one. If we're not growing, we are declining. If we're not growing, beloved, we are declining. And if you cannot humbly, underline that word, with all of the implications of biblical humility, see any evidence of growth, I think you need to get down on your knees and begin to pray for grace to, first of all, get a better understanding of what's making you tick or what isn't making you tick. And then over to Second Peter, if you will, uh, for just a minute. Uh, and I want to come back to the John 15 thing. Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 2. 
Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. There's the sufficiency of scripture, you see. Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. How do we get everything pertaining to life and godliness? Through him who's called us. How do you get him? You get him by dwelling in his word. For by these things he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So he's saying if there isn't some kind of progress, some kind of growth, some kind of fruitfulness, something's the matter. And he now tells us what to do about it if that's there. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. I want to tie this together by saying that the sanctification that God commands is the premier evidence of salvation. That is the evidential vindication of the reality of salvation. As surely as when a baby is born and those loving parents begin to feed and nurture the baby, baby grows. Baby grows. Isn't that wonderful? And you and I don't know how baby grows fully. Even the biologists who have, by God's grace, understood many things do not fully understand every aspect of growth. And isn't it amazing? You don't even have to have a degree of biology. You take little Burpton or Hepzibah, you daily insert in their little mouth spoonful after spoonful of, fat, of food, and something amazing happens. Little Burpton's body, little Hepzibah's body begins to grow. And there's all kinds of sophisticated chemical reactions and all sorts of wonderful biochemical catalytic uh, events taking place and all sorts of cellular activity busily doing their billions of little cells busily doing their cellular business and you and I you know say God's running this see I don't have to stew about uh, their little bodies and so God's word gives us then uh, not only the clue that uh, fruitfulness is a uh, a very wonderful evidence of being ingrafted and saved. But sanctification is an integral part of resisting temptation. Now, did you get that? 
that the act and fact of being proactively involved in the glorious business of being sanctified is part of that wonderful protection that God has designed for his people to keep us from falling into sin. And I submit when we fall into sin, uh, one of the reasons is always the neglect of the means of grace that are to be employed in the business of living in a holy manner. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, beginning with verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example. He's referring to the events of the Exodus which Alan pointed out to us in that hymn this, or the children's song this morning about the horse and rider. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. What's Paul describing there? One word. He's saying, don't be proud or, if you will, describing humility, isn't he? Yeah, that's a warning not to be proud, a call to humility. Verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful. Where's the emphasis? Self or Savior? Savior, isn't it? God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure. People say, well, I just can't resist. It's a lie. No, the issue is I choose not to resist. Uh, when we say uh, to a loved one, well, you make me so angry. That's a lie. That is a 100% lie. Because the only two beings in the face of the earth that can make you angry are God and you yourself. And let me tell you something. God isn't in the business of making you sin. And be dogmatic. See, there's a dogmatic pounding of the pulpit. Okay? Or the desk or whatever this thing is. So, if you eliminate God, how does that reduce the field? And really cuts it down quickly. You don't need a PhD in logic to figure where it ends up. And if we were honest, we'd say, yes, you behave badly, but my own sinful heart chose not to resist the temptation to respond with anger to your sinful behavior. That would be honest. And so you see, there is always a way of escape. And if we don't see it or choose to employ it, that doesn't mean it's not there. 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's go over there quickly. By the way, Lan, are you doing your time thing? Yes. Did you do it? No. Oh, okay. Oh, my heart's at ease. A little surge of guilt there back into the little box. Okay. 1 Peter 5. Are you going to do your thing? I will. Okay. <laughs> Those who are insecure usually manifest it in various ways. First Peter 5, verses 8 through 10. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, 
prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, who do you think he wants to devour? His people that are comfortably serving him? Who's he want to devour? Who? Let's hear it. Servants of Jesus Christ, Christians, believers. Those are the ones he wants to eat. Munch, munch, munch. Be, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, let me tell you something. If I attend... Oh, thank you, Len. Security is returned for breasts. STD breasts. Spatial temporal disorder breasts. Okay. Now, here, here comes one of the big ones of this week. Are you ready? I said some of these things were un-American. Here comes un-American thought number one. God calls us to suffer. He calls us to suffer as part of our growth. He calls us to suffer somewhere along life's path, if we're really his children, that is guaranteed. Let me show you two texts. First of all, Hebrews 12. Beginning with verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Like to know in this room, is there anybody here who has suffered persecution to where blood was shed? Anybody? I see no hands. You have? Okay, one person. One. Any others? One. Tony has. Two. Not very many then. Tiny, tiny percentage. And it wasn't unto death, praise God, was it? It wasn't unto death. So we're still here, even the two that have had to shed blood. What, did you get a rock thrown at you or something like that? or Telephone smash in your head? Hit you in the nose, okay? Eileen? Someone tried to choke her to death. So we've got three that have experienced physical persecution. Praise God, you're still here. So you see what, what the Spirit is saying then, that the normative, if you will, or ordinary reality is that most of us, most of the time, go to our grave without going there as martyred people. That's a very tiny minority of Christians that die as martyrs. Now look what he says. You've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And what's scourging? Just by way of a moment's remembrance. What's scourging? Hmm? It's a whipping with a particular type of interest. 
of instruments. Cat of nine tails. What was a cat of nine tails? It was a whip with nine whips attached to one handle. And then what was at the end of each one of those? little piece of rock or metal or bone. And you only needed about three of those across your back by some burly executioner or that type of person. Your back looked like a bowl of hamburger. When Christ was scourged for us, that's how it was done. And now he says that every single child of God is going to be the recipient of scourging. And I ask you as you sit here today, do you believe it? Or have you been so brainwashed by the pain-free lie of the preachers of false gospels that you believe that Jesus Christ doesn't want you ever have to, to suffer, ever have to be poor, or ever have to be in difficulty, that he wants you to be prosperous and happy. And that is the goal of redemption, is that you are here to find perfect fulfillment and contentment in this life. So you can't have it both ways, can you? You can't have it both ways. And beloved, I believe that in our Reformed churches, we're not altogether fuzzy on this. I mean, altogether clear. I believe we're fuzzy sometimes. Uh, <laughs> that was badly said. I was not altogether clear in what I said about being altogether clear. <laughs> that was fuzzily said. And so the fact is that he now points out further that the discipline that God gives us is for our benefit. Verse 11, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The peaceable fruit of righteousness. That's sanctification. That's growing in holiness. That's putting off sin and putting on righteousness. First Peter chapter 2, the suffering book. Verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Now, did you get that last word? Unjustly. Unless we miss the point, he makes it very plain. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? In other words, you're just getting what you deserve. Thanks, Lynn. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And then look at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Do you believe this morning that Jesus Christ suffered for you? And if you said amen to that in your heart or with your mouth or with both, then you and I, if we say amen to that, have to take the other part of this and say he has called us to this purpose. What? To suffer the right way when we're treated wrongly. And that means, among other things, not taking the defensive, not putting our rights as the most important issue that must be pursued. 
being more concerned for the glory of Jesus Christ than our comfort zone level or whatever. And I ask you, when you get a little bit of unjust treatment, what do you do with it? Your gall rise within you. And you determine to vindicate yourself. Let me let you in on a secret. It took me a long time to see it. Slow learner. Slow learner right here in front of you. Mark one, mod one, off the shelf. Boringly predictable. Garden variety slow learner. It took me years to figure it out. That when God defends us, he does a much, much better job. When God vindicates us, he does a much better job. But when you and I make it a goal, and I submit dogmatically an illegitimate goal to make defending ourselves the first business of the day, God will step aside and let us fall flat on our face 10,000 times if it's necessary to get the point of the obvious. So God word, God's word then calls us to recognize the truth that the cornerstone of sanctification is his truth manifested in Christ, the benefits thereof applied by the Holy Spirit as we as much in salvation so in sanctification live out those marvelous redemptive concepts. I think i got a minute, right? Let's end this morning with this one and I have a couple minutes to finish in sanctification. Amazingly, in spite of myself, we're within a few minutes of being on schedule. Let's end with this one. John 17, 17. Oh, isn't that marvelous? Here he is facing the cross. For all time and eternity, he wants to highlight this truth. Where in a more glorious and reverential setting than that great, great prayer for his people as he prepares to suffer and die for us. He says, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. See, there's truth. Where did we start? We started with truth. We can't get away from truth. Everything, whether in those ideas we hold in our mind or the way we behave to the other, one another or the way we respond to the world is to be in God's truth. Let's take our break. <laughs>